Hello everyone and welcome to Primrose Light. You're here with me, Roshni, and today I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Geetha Paraha. Uh, Geetha is a lawyer with particular expertise in environmental and human rights issues. She's formerly the head of legal at Friends of the Earth and works uh, in-house as a consultant for NGOs and the United Nations. Alongside this, she's also a trustee of the Climate Justice Fund, which has been set up to support legal climate initiatives, predominantly in the Global South. Geetha also has a strong background in environmental legal campaigns and was shortlisted for the in-house Lawyer of the Year by the Lawyer magazine during her time at the Friends of the Earth, which is a huge uh, accolade to have had the privilege of even being shortlisted for, so that's fantastic. Uh, In addition, she also has got a keen interest in spirituality and environmental matters and is studying for an MA in spirituality and ecology, as well as coordinating an environmental sangha group at her local temple. Geetha is also the co-founder of the Regenerative Activism series of conferences, which focuses on taking a holistic approach to environmental activism. So I'm really looking forward to unpacking this in much more detail, Geetha. You're a a very intelligent and uh, sort of diversified professional, so thrilled to have you. Thank you for for coming on. Um, It would be, I guess, lovely to to perhaps start more at the beginning. Obviously, you are a lawyer by background. Talk to us about why law and then what sort of led you down to environmental law. Hi, Roshni. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, I guess I've listened to a number of your other podcasts and others have spoken about being on a journey. And I think that really is the case for me. I don't think I ever thought I was going to be a lawyer. I was very oriented towards justice. I grew up in a um, in Haringey, went on to a, uh, a right-on left-wing girl school in Haringey and learned about colonialism, learned about civil rights, learned about Gandhi and um, grew up in an environment where I saw that in the local context around me as well, <clears throat> the impacts of injustice. And so I, I felt like I would like to learn a way of being in the world that could help um, address that injustice. And I loved writing. I was always very drawn to language. And so law felt like a nice mixture of those two things. But when I was 18, I think I just chose law because I wanted to say, I thought it would sound quite cool to say, I'm doing a law degree. (laughs) And I thought I'd go and become a journalist or something like that afterwards. Um, And where I studied, it was really oriented towards commercial and city lawyers. And that didn't particularly grab me. Um, we had a criminal lawyer come in and talk about justice and values, and that was something I found super inspiring. Um, and um, I, I thought I would become a human rights lawyer. I did some traveling, um, worked for a charity law firm. And that was, it almost felt like at the time, it felt like perhaps this would be enough of a compromise because it was a law firm that acted for a lot of NGOs on human rights and environmental issues, including um, Friends of the Earth. And so it ha- because it had those kinds of clients, it really had a really nice ethos and you had a good salary. <clears throat> and there were so many things about it that kind of fit, even though it wasn't what I really wanted to do. I kind of felt like, actually, maybe this will do for a while and then I'll, I'll leave and go into the NGO world. Um, and so that's sort of what happened. And then I, I had... Uh, quite a, a, a jolt actually when I was um, 26 when my mother passed away very very suddenly very unexpectedly and that was for me um, a real threshold moment because it made me understand that life is short and it's unpredictable 
and that you don't know what's around the corner really and it made me assess where I was going in my life and where I wanted to orient my life and I felt like actually what I want to do is spend time with my family um, and I'm interested in human rights and I want to go back and perhaps I can study a master's. I was the qualified, I just qualified then when this happened. Um, and so yeah, I stepped out of that job and that career, which perhaps would have been very scary had those other things not had happened. And now looking back, I think although I was 26, I didn't have responsibilities there. There's not anything you know particularly dramatic about doing that. But at that age, it feels like a big thing because you know you're stepping away from the known world. Absolutely. So I went back and I did a master's and I spent time with my family and I just did stuff that I enjoyed really. Um, which was UN law, human rights law, um, environmental law. I did, um, it was slightly, I wasn't quite sure about it, but I decided to do it. Um, and I actually had studied about climate change and GCSE geography, um, and along with the ozone layer, and I just thought they would get fixed. And I think the ozone layer more or less did get fixed. And I was studying international environmental law and realized actually no one had fixed the climate thing. And in the process of me growing up, it just got worse. And I was like, oh no. How did, why did no one fix this in the in the process? And maybe maybe I need to be doing this um, rather than human rights law. So that's what oriented me towards environmental law. And looking back now, I also see that I'd always I'd always loved nature. I'd always wanted to be in nature. I um, was disappointed when I went to Wood Green near me that there was no wood or no green to be yes. seen. <laughs> Um, went to the manor very early with my parents. We didn't have a car, but we got taken by friends and I loved it. I loved the greenery and I loved the cows and I kept asking to go back, even though I was only about four at the time. And when my parents got a car, we, we ended up going back to the manor and that was often um, the Iskorn Temple in Watford. And that was really my first regular introduction to kind of more rural green space. So thinking about it all did come together, but at the time it sort of felt like a, a journey. And my environmental law is always very laced with rights and human rights and justice issues and working for Friends of the Earth actually was a really lovely combination of the two because it's it's the environment, but it's people and the environment as well. Wow, thank you so much for that sort of snippet, I guess, into, you know, that, that time in your life. And um, I think it's quite telling, you know, it made you jolt, you sort of used that word uh, when your mum sadly passed away and it made you reassess. And I guess they say, don't you, you can look uh, with the benefit of hindsight you can connect the dots but actually it was all there uh, but now you're sort of living living and, and sort of breathing your or your authentic truth in that sense that's that's really really wonderful and you sort of mentioned friends of the earth I mean you, you talked to us about your time there you were head of legal you were obviously shortlisted for the lawyer of the uh, the lawyer award uh, you obviously must have seen a lot of stuff and done a lot of stuff and, and perhaps felt like you were in your element talk to us about the sorts of issues that you were coming up against um, and, and and your experience there sure um, yes absolutely uh, when I when I saw the advert for a lawyer at Friends of the Earth I really thought I, I just had a sense of okay this is my job this is the job that I'm supposed to be doing and this is after my master's and I was doing some training at a public interest environmental law firm. Um, and when I got there, I just loved it. I loved the environment. I remember contrasting it with when I was a solicitor and I used to, the firm I was at was near St. Paul's and I'd come out of St. Paul's station. It's so beautiful. My heart would always sink and I'd always shrink a little bit because I know it wasn't really me. And when I got to Friends of the Earth, I sort of, I couldn't believe people were paying me actually to do this job. I felt like I could, I would have done it for three, free and the people were so lovely and the energy was also different. There wasn't that, there was a striving energy, but it mm. wasn't that sort of 
passionate like got together you know it was a kind of more um, open and there was a real collaborative maybe it was a, yes. a different way of engaging yes. and the people were really lovely so that was that was super nice um, and I loved engaging with the law through campaigns through real world what you know activities it was be an airport expansion um, I worked on Heathrow uh, airport expansions a couple of times and we um, one time we wrote to the government because they were supposed to do an equalities assessment um, to check out you know, the, the impacts on the communities around and they'd recognise they were supposed to do one or that there were I- different impacts on different uh, groups mm. um, but they decided not to do an assessment um, and when we wrote to them they said oh don't be silly you know, when we said we, we weren't going to do an assessment it just, we just meant we're not, we hadn't done one yet we're going to do one now because they obviously realised they would get taken to court um, and uh, working on climate negotiations like the Paris Agreement. Um, probably my favourite clients were beavers. <laughs> so we were we helped support the first um, reintroduction of beavers into the UK after 500 years. Um, and uh, we we were kind of the stick in the case where the wildlife trust was applying to release them into the wild or allow them. They had been released into the wild, and the wildlife trust wanted to keep them in the wild. Um, and we brought a court case saying, well, you know, if you if you don't, we'll sue you because we don't understand the assessment procedure by which you, you've decided that you, they can't be in the world. Um, so that was lovely to be able to be um, part of that. Uh, oh, there were so many things. I think looking back on it, it's just a blur because there was so much all the time. And um, it's a small legal team. It's a massive set of issues ranging from kind of domestic to global. You never quite know what's going to happen next. Um, another key case related to um, the feed, solar feed-in tariff. So that's the kind of um, payment you got for re- shifting to renewable energy, which was designed to support people taking up renewable energy in their homes. And the government decided um, that they were going to change that and they were consulting on it. But they said that even though we're consulting, the change will take place on this date, that is during the consultation. <laughs> so obviously that was kind of from a legal perspective quite not thing to be doing. Um, so getting involved with things like that as well. Um, and what I find, found though after 10 years and the reason that I left is that I felt like I was continuously dealing with the symptoms. And so Heathrow came up up again as we know it does um, and it feels like a bad penny actually. It just comes up every few years and there were other airport expansions and there were the same issues that were coming Mm. up Um, and while you can try and stop the projects and you can try and work on the policies it felt like there was an underlying disconnect and that in my role I was never getting to it because it was always so you know instant having to resolve having to and you know never really having time to stop and consider and so I felt in some ways I'd outgrown some parts of it and some parts of me were being very underutilized Mm -hmm. and needed more of a kind of um, needed to be explored a bit more and so I stepped out on my own as a consultant which was you know a bit of a step into the unknown but I've, I've really loved it since then I've loved having the flexibility I'm still doing similar sorts of work and advising NGOs on legal campaigns and how to use the law and able to bring that experience that I've already had mm. um, but it also means I can study for the masters I can I can explore this issue I can look at things like um, burnout which we, we may talk about later and just see how all of these things actually fit together in a in a bigger piece that is not only the reaction to the immediate 
symptoms yes no that's that's really interesting and exactly the word I was going to say it sounds like your time at the friends of the earth whilst it was you know incredibly high profile and, and interesting it was very reactive and so therefore it was almost dependent upon you being there to stop or getting an injunction or whatever it might be rather than actually the processes and the, the systems changing and I guess I'm curious to know being a lawyer and a passionate one in the spheres that you you are in how did you personally handle that? Because I think you also mentioned the word burnout and I can imagine that frustration. You've got these big issues. You're wanting to people to see the wood for the trees, but they're not because the processes just mean that they're kind of attacking you almost as it were. And then you're trying, you're only one person or a small group of, you know, of organisations doing that. I'm curious to know how, how was that being kind of very reactive on, on the front line as it were? Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, there were, there definitely was sort of that long-term thinking and systemic thinking, and Friends of the Earth is very good at sort of recognising what's needed if systems change. Um, but I think where the disconnect can often happen in NGOs is what does that mean for people working in the organisation? Because you have that sense of urgency, you have that sense of this massive change needed, mm. and there's generally a very small number of people um, trying to do far too much. And it's that ability to to let go um, and say, okay, I've done what I can for now, and what is what enough in a in a particular situation. Um, and sometimes you do need a concerted push. So, for example, Friends of the Earth was really instrumental. My a colleague of mine really instrumental in and the campaigners he worked with in stopping fracking, you know, and that was a really important victory. And it took a lot of work and a lot of organizing and a lot of working with communities. So there are absolutely points where you can look back and say, well, if that hadn't happened, you wouldn't have had this outcome. But it's the balance of that. And it's the, um, my, my sense of it now is that there is, there's a deeper disconnection that's going on and it's a disconnection with our, with how we see the world and so yes. even if you're you're in the place of saying well you know i i need to do everything i can i'm going to work all the hours i'm going to exhaust myself you're almost um it's almost like you're trying to extract from yourself in the way yeah. that people are extracting too much oil and gas and yeah everything is too much by now you're doing the same thing from yourself in order to try and make things better and, and that just doesn't work because you just end up with exhaustion and burnout so yes. there's an approach and an understanding and an ability to feel that you're part of a wider ta- tapestry that I think um, often doesn't happen and so you have people who work really intensely maybe for five ten years and then just have to step away mm. and and actually this is a this is I thought I'd do it for a while and then fix climate change and go and do something else and you know I'm very clear now that's not gonna not gonna happen really no, no. And <laughs> it's a lifetime it is a um, lifetime. And, lifetime. I, and I think that's exactly sort of the big, big sort of question I wanted to ask you, obviously, the systems in place and the, you know, the capitalist world, the industrial sort of world we live in, the consumerist world. Talk to us about kind of how you see it kind of from your lens um, in terms of these systems competing with with Mother Earth and Mother Nature and actually this concept of Mother Earth and Mother Nature. That's not a new concept, but we've almost forgotten it a little bit in the West. So talk to us about if, if your your experience of this this contrasting competing interest well this is something i learned 
so much more about in the course of my master's actually and I found it fascinating um, and one of the books we looked at was called The Death of Nature by an eco-feminist called Caroline Merchant and she explains how up till the 17th century um, nature was revered across the planet including in Europe and in Europe she was kind of seen as this sort of mixture between a kind of caring mother but also someone a, a wild and uncontrollable force that had to be kind of tamed and you saw that um, reflected a little bit in the, the more mechanistic experiments that were taking place at the time, but also happening around that time, Merchant points out, was the witch burning. Um, and so loads of women being othered, very often people with connection with the earth, very often herbalists. Um, and so they became other, they became separate. And what you saw happening at that time was colonialism as well, so the expansion into other parts of the world. And so that same othering and that same um, extraction from nature and other people um, happening across the board. And so you see the, and that was to support capitalism and early stage industrialism. Mm. It was people and resources being extracted in order to support that. And so you see from the very genesis of that system, it, it was rooted in exploitation of both nature and people and 500 years on we are almost at the logical conclusion of that you know use what we see in terms of the diseases and the climate change biodiversity loss all of the things that we see you can find your roots in that developing it to get to the extreme situation that we're in now and we have a sense where um, certainly in the Western world, many of us see as ourselves as, as distinct from nature, separate and apart from nature. And all traditional systems, in, you know, including the one in which I was uh, raised um, within Hinduism, you, you, you're actually taught you're part of a wider whole and you're not separate and you're not above and you're not there to exploit it. Um, you're there to be in service to others and to see yourself as part of a greater whole. Um, and it's that that's got lost. And that's that that's got been attempted to be replaced with ideas like, well, just buy this thing. You're not happy because you don't have this thing. You don't have this holiday. You don't have this house or these clothes. Um, so keep buying, keep consuming and try and build something that's actually not um, a, a materialistic thing at all. It's actually a spiritual sense of disconnection. And I think my masters have been really helpful in, in helping me understand really how that plays out on a day to day level. Mm, that's really interesting and it's certainly a topic I want to come back to sort of in what you've been covering in your master's and perhaps your own realizations as you develop in your own journey of life but I guess just sort of touching on this point about sort of women and this disconnection and this extraction and colonialism obviously where we are in the world right now I don't know I don't mean to sound pessimistic but it just seems like we're so far from changing these old practices? I mean, do you think that things are improving or, or where do you see the current state of affairs? It's an interesting one because things are in, in terms of the climate change that we're seeing and the um, the difficulty that we're having in meeting the targets and the, the way that we're pushing further and further away those, from those targets is deeply disheartening. And mm. I think almost in order to be able to do this job, you have to not look at the science too much because it's paralyzing in many ways um but in other ways you do see these powerful shifts in awareness um there was a really important case a couple of well earlier late may now um where fossil fuel giant shell was held liable by the netherlands court and told that as a company it needed to be reducing um its carbon emissions and that's had massive ramifications in the fact that you know, courts aren't exactly the most radical places in the world, as you well know. 
And the fact that a court can actually say that to a company when there is no um, change, no particular company law that requires that or anything, it's in, interpreting a very fluid Dutch duty of care in to require Shell to do this and bring in human rights and all of these other aspects. I think that's absolutely amazing. Yes. Um, and the rights of nature cases that are happening in different parts of the world where there isn't quite that level of disconnection, so particularly in Latin America where rivers are being given rights and um, the Amazon has been declared to be a legal entity and there's been case law in India um, on this. Uh, relating to the sacred rivers, the Ganga and the Yamuna, even though that ultimately wasn't um, successful in the Supreme Court. In New Zealand, indigenous groups also have declared um, rivers and the sacred spaces um, entities in their own rights and been given guardianship or a um, part of the role in the role of guardians over them. And I think that is amazing. And it's also showing um, perhaps a cultural shift because in in the western context you could say well how can you give something that isn't living um legal rights how does it appear how does it represent itself in court and it's really um telling to point out that actually we already do that to entities that don't exist and they're called companies you know and they have often have human rights but it's so these are real cultural ways of seeing the world that aren't um set in stone and are the product of how we choose to value things, how we choose to view things, and that that can change. Um, I think the question is whether that will change quickly enough, um, and that I think is the concern. Yes. But I think there is, we are seeing a kind of, especially as as things get more difficult and all the holes in the current way we live are become more and more apparent, and even the idea of economic growth and you know having a wonderful life becomes less and less attainable for most people. You know, even in the in the western parts of the world, it you start to see the holes in that, and so that I think is it's we're in an epoch where that way of seeing the world is dying. It's not clear how long it's going to take to die, and it's not quite clear what it's going to be replaced with. But I think the fact that it is starting to fracture around the edges is is uh, is where we're at. That's where we're at. I don't know how long that's going to take, um, and whether there's going to be this back and forth. If you have Trump, and then you have you know you ha you see this tussle happening between yes. the different value systems. Um, but I think in that in that place is uh, it's ripe for new ways of seeing the world or remembering old ways of seeing the world and having new ways of engaging or integrating that into into ways of living and I think that's really um, positive and inspiring mm. and, and it's a great point and I'm curious to know kind of how much do you think spirituality can play a part in that because you know uh, I guess traditionally the, the western world is less more inclined towards sort of theology and 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 um spirituality and connecting with mother earth as we were saying in that way whereas maybe indigenous or more religious people maybe view the earth in a bit more of a sanctified way maybe might be vegetarian not necessarily again it depends very much on your faith but i'm curious to know um you know ultimately 20 percent of the world's um countries have a footprint that impact 80 percent of the rest of the world so it just strikes me harsh that here in the West we we have very little disregard and we have no often visibility. Um and I'm just curious to know if we hold different values to those that, that maybe are, are more in, in that twenty percent and they are the more religious or theologically advanced, um, how that seems fair and, and what do you what are your thoughts around that? Yes, you've spoken to a very important point there, which is kind of a 
core aspect of the climate justice movement, which is that the the climate change that we're seeing is the responsibility predominantly of um, the northern part of the globe through industrialising and through the historical emissions and the development that's taken place on the back of them, added on to you know colonialism and extractivism from other parts of the world. And yet it's those other parts of the world that are suffering the most from climate change, um, the furthest, the, the hardest, and are, are slated to have the worst impacts. Um, and that's addressed in the Paris Agreement on Climate Change in Article 8, which is called Loss and Damage. And there was a big debate about whether that should include compensation. And it almost, the article almost did not go into the Paris Agreement because countries like the US <clears throat> were so resistant to any idea of having to pay uh, compensation for what has happened in the past. But it remains a very live debate. And even in the G7 last week, um, while there was this announcement of how much money was going to go to climate finance, it actually is a drop in the ocean to what's needed. It's a pledge that came back from Copenhagen in 2009 and still hasn't been met properly. Um, and it doesn't speak to these issues. So um, I think there's a convenient masking of of what has happened and very few people are aware. Um, in the same way, they're not not very many people are aware of the impacts of climate change no. that are you know are being faced anywhere. And I think that once we've seen with citizens assemblies like the ones that happened in the UK, that once people are made aware, they actually are open to far more radical change yes. than politicians would necessarily think. Um, and so that's that's where the kind of and it's and it's also a debate around well how do we respond? Do we respond in a way that promotes justice that redresses the injustice that we have? Um, or do we go for more kind of techno-fix ideas which are either pie in the sky or rooted again in more um, exploitation? So some of the work I've done is around geoengineering, looking at things like proposals for solar radiation management, which is cloud brightening and things like that, which, you know, we've already got one massive experiment in place with the Earth system, and then doing another one at the same time, which risks monsoon shifts and all sorts of other things, but is, you know, less expensive than whole, you know, massive systems change of the kind that we're looking at and less interfering of, of the current ideology, you could say. So again, there's these sort of massive battles going on around what is the way forward mm-hmm. um, and how do we, um, how do we address this? And looking at the justice angle and the rights angle is super, super important in helping identify what are the, um, what are the ways forward. And, you know, uh, indigenous peoples, for example, conserve 80% of the world's biodiversity on their lands because they have developed over thousands and thousands of years systems of living with the earth. It's not like they leave the earth or where they are untouched, but they found a way to do that in a way that doesn't um, mean that it's being depleted and eradicated. So that's those, those kinds of ideas and ways of learning are actually what we need to go back to. But you do, again, see this, this fight between actually, no, this is more of the same, more of the same, you know, and, and this idea that that is somehow regressive when actually it, it can be really nourishing to reconnect with communities and to work in small spaces and to reconnect with nature. Um, as we've seen, many of us have seen as one of the few linings to the COVID Absolutely. pandemic has been that reconnection. Absolutely. I mean, you said it so beautifully and poignantly. And I guess you're absolutely right. The global economic system has and is destroying, you know, the natural world. Our livelihoods and well-beings are very much at stake. And unless we transform the economic world and move away from this dependence on growth and 
global monopolies and we go towards this much more localized economy like you're saying with the indigenous people with well-being more at the center connecting with the earth i think we're only headed for more trouble so i i, I think you said it well but i'm curious to know you we, we sort of mentioned the g7 and and you know then perhaps also using different metrics to suit them to give this impression that they're doing lots of great stuff and and actually uh the, the fact that it's just a mask which i think is which is really interesting and i guess i'm curious to know from your perspective, what sorts of things should they be doing? What sorts of things do we need to be doing, particularly given you've got a better sense as to sort of the climate change emergency um, and the situation that awaits everyone, essentially. No one will will be uh, omitted from, from, from not feeling the wrath of it. So I'm curious to know what you think. Um, well, I think when you're looking at things like, for example, we have a Climate Change Act in the UK and we have carbon budgets and we're looking at how do you implement those budgets, you make sure that those are actually, you know, you, you have them at the right levels that reflect the responsibility of the UK and its um, historical emissions. You ensure that you're, um, sent, you're financing countries and other parts of the world in order to be able to take the actions that they need to be able to take. Um, you're looking at more local, exactly as you say, local level solutions. You're looking at community owned renewable energy. You're looking at being able to grow locally, more public transport, uh, more people staying in, in sort of more localized spaces, uh, incentivizing people not to drive or fly, um, ha having aviation tax in the way that it should be. I mean, I, we had a policy as, as many NGOs do, and I still personally follow is to take the train. Uh, so Friends of the Earth, like many NGOs, I think, has policies around using the trains for uh, travel where that's possible in Europe. And I used to take the train to Geneva for meetings. And uh, from what I remember, it's, it, well, I still do take trains, but obviously not recently given COVID. But train prices are so much more expensive than flying. And it just does seem to be ridiculous to me that you can go up in the air, go across a bit and come back down again. And that is cheaper mm. than just staying on the ground and getting from A to B. Uh, so subsidies around um, public transport and flying very much do need to be looked at. Uh, so those I think are uh, some key policies and none of these are, are rocket science. None of these are new. These have been very known for a while. Mm. Um, and yet they are not implemented, uh, which is quite frustrating to see, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking, as you were saying about using the train, it reminded me of, of Greta Thunberg, actually, because she um, there was a really interesting documentary on the BBC, I think it was last month, um, and it was sort of a three or four part series, and it was talking about her work um, sort of going to the UN, going to Davos, uh, and you know, travelling across the world, essentially, through... Uh, driving her dad very kindly would drive her or you know they would take uh, boats uh, often you know across the Atlantic very treacherous weather conditions but you know she absolutely refuses to fly uh, given her sort of conviction obviously it would be incongruent to, to do that uh, given what she's advocating so uh, that was what I was thinking of when you were saying about that but you know as Barack Obama even says right there's one issue that will define the contours of this century more dramatically than any other and that's the urgent threat of a climate of climate change so I mean I'm just curious to know um obviously there are some things that we can do but what have you got any tips for us sort of individually that we can be doing because 
I know people think, oh, this is a big problem and I'm not going to be able to do my, I'm not going to be able to do much. And, and of course it will take a global effort, but I'm curious to know if you've got any tips that you can share with people that they can start implementing from now. I think be very careful about who you vote for, <laughs> because that ultimately, you know, these are, we can take individual actions and, um, they do make a difference because those are areas which we have control over. So, you know, choosing your energy supplier and taking public transport and being mindful are all really important things. Um, but ultimately, some of this is about systems change and it's about politics and it's about sending political signals that certain things are no longer acceptable. Um, and that is super important. I think it's also in terms of the jobs that we do and the things that we choose to invest our time and money in. Um, it really is, these are, these problems, the word is, uh, that often gets used is intersectionality, which yes. means that climate change and climate justice intersect with uh, racism and other, you know, other kinds of injustices and, they com- and economic injustice and social injustice and they compound each other. And so working in a way that doesn't contribute to a system that creates that or allows that to happen is, is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and being socially engaged, being able to be part of your local community and work with community and change and shape your own local spaces and having those dialogues, I think, is absolutely uh, key as well because that's part of slowly shifting where the needle is. And we've seen, again, you know, the response to COVID has led to more community engagement in many mm. ways and people being more aware of their local areas and what's being built there and what they're like and where the green spaces are and where the children can play and um all of those kinds of things and neighborliness all of that i think is is really important Mm. um and actually uh going back to what we were talking about earlier on with the the spiritual connection i think uh, spending time in nature in the wilderness in any kind of way developing a connection even in an urban environment would really help remove that sense of separateness and it takes a lot and i know i remember said earlier on about this being a 500 year process it probably would take about 500 years to consider yourself separate from what you need to breathe to stay alive you know what you need to breathe or drink or eat and all of those systems are things that we are separate from and so really recultivating that sense of connection with ourselves with others with the natural world um not only with the human world and the, uh, but the animal world as well and, and all of those ways in which we can reconnect are, are super important Absolutely, no great tips there, and you know, I guess just picking up on the latter one about going out into nature, going out into the wilderness, you know, even something like listening to the bees, you know, it's such a, you know, we we don't think anything of it, but you know, British bees are in trouble, you know, thirty five UK bees are under threat of extinction. They have such an important function in terms of food and crops and agriculture, and it it actually giving us and nurturing us, you know, and sustaining us as humans, but these very simple um but meaningful creatures have a role to play and i think just maybe like you're saying connecting back um with that uh is very important so you mentioned uh, sort of changing tack a bit there Gita. you talked about intersectionality and you 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 nicely defined it uh, and it's obviously again a big topic to to touch upon that the um those marginalized or women um or from ethnic minorities are disproportionately marginalized and bear the brunt and impact of uh climate change or or anything negative really that's happening in the world and i'm curious to know 
A, how has that come about? B, what can what what are we what can we do to to stop that? Well, partly, um, a massive part of it is is the justice element I was talking about earlier and the colonialism and the way that that continues to be a process of extraction from certain parts of the world to support the economies and the ways of living in other parts of the world. And to the extent that those those practices are spreading outside the global north, that all that means is that the strain is even greater. Um, And uh, environmental injustice was a term coined in the US in particular because of the way that their particular planning system works and how you can zone areas, which really had very direct um, implications for ethnic minorities. But it's also um, the case in the UK to the extent that that poverty and race coincide, then you will find that that you have the same um, impacts being felt. So, for example, air pollution uh, or um, health um, outcomes so there is that connection um absolutely there well they've said actually yeah. about about air pollution uh, you know this idea and in fact a mutual friend sheila was speaking about it, that why do we all have to travel nine to five actually just simply stepping outside the nine to five uh, or if you know you're you live in an area where there's lots of schools actually mums dads rushing to drop their children actually and then you wonder why your children have asthma actually it's very simple if we choose to realize because obviously air pollution is only increasing particularly in the big cities um but but i'm not sure there's that level of engagement maybe or knowledge there and i'm curious to know why why is that these are such fundamental issues why don't more people know about them because it's not in the interests of very many people that they do know. So, you know, if people have a right to drive or they think driving is the best way to get from A to B, mm. um, they want to be to continue in that way of seeing the world. And there's very many actors who'd want them to also continue in that way of seeing the world. Mm. Um, and certainly when I was growing up, going to school, you walked and you, you even walked on your own, yes. never mind with a parent or two um, after a certain age. Um, and all of that has completely changed, of course. Um, and I think just the the it's it's where it's partly relates to what I was saying earlier is that sort of that understanding that your right to breathe, which is absolutely in, in, inherent and essential to you, is more important than what car you drive or being able to drive a car. And people w- would naturally understand that, but if they're not, if that's not being made clear to them and they're just being told, well, look, you know, you've got a low emission zone and that means you want to drive this kind of car and then you'll get, you know, you'll get a pushback. But I think, I think things are changing on, uh, on that front. I think there's, there's a greater understanding. I think there's really, I've really noticed how many more cyclists there are on the yeah. roads now. Mm-hmm. I really salute them because the roads are not safe. Um, but there's so many more people cycling, which is amazing. Um, from my own perspective, I, I used to travel a great deal um, to be part of, you know, the thing with international meetings is if you're going to have somewhere to go, a whole load of people are going to have to travel to get there um, yes. if you want border representation. And there's certainly issues with participation in developing countries and internet access and um, that need to be resolved. But in principle, being able to have meetings online is a massive um, advantage yes. as well, and being able to live life in a way that means that you're not having to um, create quite a, quite so much air, air pollution. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's it, it, again, I, I see this as a symptom. It's, these are all kind of symptoms of a of a way of living that isn't actually favouring humans. It's favouring consumption and increased 
um, economic growth, and that is a model that's indicated that we've got to a point where we know that's actually very harmful yeah, for absolutely. humans, um, and, and there's a disconnect there, and so it's kind of reeling it back in, and exactly as you were saying, looking at what do we value it, and should we be valuing in our economy, and then how do we create a way of living and an economic um, way of being that actually is aligned with that rather than an outdated model that's actually just very harmful. Absolutely, and, and exactly that point so just to take that one step further so we need to obviously reassess and, and sort of keep the bits that are working and then obviously uh, remove the things that don't which is obviously a great deal but how what role do you think that law uh, and policy has to play in shaping that because often the law is just catching up as I'm sure you'll agree with what's already been happening and, and actually it's, it's often several years behind where it ought to be um so what what role do you think lawyers, judges, those in policy can do? Um, I think that the, there have been some really uh, super ways of using the law in the context of climate litigation. I think there's been some really creative legal cases that are being put forward. So I mentioned the Shell case. Yeah. There's also the RWE case, which is looking at um, a German company uh, is being bought by a Peruvian farmer whose village is being threatened by a glacier melt. And the German company is being sued for its responsibility towards climate change, which is contributing to that. And it's obviously not the only contrib- contributor, but the farmer is um, asking for a small proportion of uh, all the, like, the responsibility to um, protect his village. So it's not like he's looking for a massive amount either, but it's the principle of the thing of explaining that what happens here actually has impacts in other places um, and you have the rights of nature cases I mentioned earlier and so you really are seeing the current law being pushed as much as it possibly can but that law is as you say in many ways outdated it doesn't value the things that really need to be valued in, in order to see create the society we want to see there's no real legal protection of climate refugees for example the refugee convention doesn't cover them rights of nature are quite a long way from being considered in the in the uk but they are being developed and discussed in other places um the crime of ecocide again is another really interesting one um pioneered by the late polly higgins uh, and that's the idea that there's certain kinds of environmental uh, destruction of ecosystems um, or harm to humans or ecosystems that are so egregious that they should be punished with the full force of criminal law in the same way that genocide and other yes. crimes of humanity um, have been. And so there's a campaign to make ecocide a uh, crime at the International Criminal Court. And it was actually originally proposed as part of the International Criminal Court statute, but a um, number of countries, including I think the UK, opposed it at the time. But there's now currently a panel that's um, working on a definition wow. for um, crime ecocide, and I was part of the expert group that discussed this before it was passed to the, the panel of highly eminent barristers and lawyers who are working on this, and at the end of, in, I think it's the 22nd of June, so just in a few days' time, they will um, put forward their definition, and wow. we're still a very long way from that actually becoming a thing, but in the, the amount of time in a few years when years ago when Polly, I heard Polly talk about it, it just felt totally fine in the sky and now there's a panel coming up with a definition and people are really discussing with it and, and different countries have it either in their legal system or uh, the EU is discussing it and France is looking at it and 
these steps little by little show that there is that possibility to create a kind of change if there is exactly as you say enough of a cultural or public push and i and i feel we are at that time we are in a potentially watershed time where mm. quite significant change can happen but also we can see quite regressive big pushbacks against that kind of change happening too yeah very very yeah. measured reply and i mean like christine lagarde says you know it's a collective endeavor it's collectively, you know, it's collective accountability and it may not be too late, like you're saying, if, if these countries do get together and, and can put things like that into practice. That's really, that's really extraordinary and I had no idea. So thank you for sharing. And I guess sort of thinking about sort of climate change activism, again, that's a new, is that a relatively new thing? Talk to us about your work in that, in that space. Uh, in the regenerative activism mm. space? Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, so... This is um, this is work I've been engaged with since I left Friends of the Earth, and it was seeing that very, very many people, I think I mentioned a bit earlier, will work really intensely and then just totally be on their feet and exhausted, you know. And I, and I certainly had a sense of that when I left Friends of the Earth. I didn't leave Friends of the Earth because I was burnt out, because I wasn't burnt out when I decided it was time to go. But by the time I did leave, I really wasn't sure whether I was going to be able to go to um, carry on with environmentalism. I had, I'd had 10 years and it was really sort of full on the mm. entire time and the end bit was completely, you know, I was totally wiped out by the time I left. Um, and I didn't know, I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to go back to this. Mm. And I, interestingly enough, I had very regular daily walks in my local park here, Trent Park, which I've been going to since I was seven. And it's a beautiful, beautiful space. And it really was um, very uh, healing and very reconnecting. And, and I, I found that sort of sense about six, seven months later that, yes, I am ready to do this. And I remember talking with a, a colleague about this and she was talking about the need for fallow periods. And I think that was such a beautiful way of it, um, expressing it, that we are, we are like the seasons. We are, as humans, we can't be going all the time. We need our rest. We need our recuperation. We are you know, holistic beings and we thrive on so many things and that our activism, which is rooted in reconnecting us with the world, involves us allowing space to do that and to recover and to recharge. And um, that's one of the things I love about being a consultant is it allows me time to do that because I can create my own structures. But I don't think that certainly in the NGO context that I know of, um, that's really, even though people do their level best and they, you know, give you sexy time and holidays and so on, but the nature of the work itself is can be so consuming that mm. people people aren't able to take advantage of that, and you kind of get get lost in the urgency and the need to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, which is never going to be enough on your own. And and um, so really having that time to reflect and looking at. Um, are there other ways of doing this? And how do I bring in my spiritual practice? So my spiritual practice had always, you know, run alongside, but it had been a way that I um, sourced from or it was distinct. And then it helped me uh, over the last few years, I've I've understood and I know that people like Kapon and Sheila have just always, this is how they've always done their activism. It's very rooted in their spirituality. But for me, it was really looking at how do I reconnect these two aspects of myself and the fact that I have you know I have grown up in a spiritual tradition which has these teachings about being part of nature and uh, revering nature and mother earth and 
Uh, and the idea of uh, karma yoga, actually, in the Gita, which is, you, you know, you do your level best and then you offer and you release. Um, and that is really important because if activists aren't doing it for, okay, I want material gain, I want money, I want prestige, that's not the way that they, they work or how they see the world, but they are hoping for a particular outcome or they want to know, like, what difference did it make or if I do this or, you know, and you will, it's not in our gift to know, we, we're never going to know. And, Equally, um, it may be the you know the legal case you were part of the policy drafted. It may be the conversation that you have with the lady at the bus stop or spending time with your nephew or niece. All of these things are activism in their own way, really, because it's about reconnecting with ourselves and others. And I think those aspects of it do get lost. Mm-hmm. And so, having had time to reflect on this, to do the masters, um, and I I co-organise every year with two other organisations. Um, a conference called Regenerative Activism, where we invite um, different activists and we discuss this and discuss different ways of engaging on this issue. And that's been really inspiring as well. Um, and so bringing those two aspects of it together, I think has been super important for me in our recent years. That's wonderful. And I'm, I'm so pleased you seem to have got a better balance for you. So you're not burning out, but you're still able to sort of be recharged and rejuvenated but still make an impact in your way so I'm, I'm really pleased you've managed to get that that happy balance uh, or happier balance um I guess I'm keen you so you've we've mentioned that you're doing a master's um you're doing that you already did a master's from from what I gathered uh, before but you're doing another master's so talk to us a bit about this master's and what you're studying now and, and how I guess with the benefit of your experience practical experience um, that that has a different meaning or it, it feels perhaps a bit different to maybe your first master's. Yes, it's interesting because the, what was behind them was um, different and similar, actually. So the my first master's that I mentioned was just straight after I qualified. And while I didn't do it to change direction, I did it because I just lost my mum and I was grieving. I wanted to spend time with my family. And I just wanted to do something that was enjoyable and interesting. So I just picked, you know, international human rights law, UN law, international environment. As one law. does, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, this was like, this was my, in my head, of, none of this was, it really reminds me of the Steve Jobs speech where he just says, you looking back, you join the dot. Yes. Because none of these things I thought could make me remotely employable. I was just doing them because I found them interesting and fun. And they were all super useful. They've been absolutely useful ever since. Yes. There have been a load of things I know because of those masters um, in my working life that others don't know that have been really helpful in my career. So you never really know. Um, but it was I did see it as a way of transitioning maybe back into the NGO world, which is where I'd originally hoped to end up. And so with this this masters, I hadn't thought of. I certainly ha- I wouldn't. I think you can either do them earlier on in your life or when you've retired. But trying to do them in the middle is quite a lot of hard work. Yes, <laughs> I, I think you're not shy of hard work. There are you, Gita. And deferring more than a fair few modules. This yeah. has been going on. I finished it this year, but it's happened over like four years, which is you know the last one I just did it in the course of a year and and took time off, and that was fine. But um. It was interesting because I had a, I, it, it sounds a little mystical, but I had a dream where I was signing up for a course and the ground was um, hills and the roof was open to the stars. And then, you know, sometimes I, I do silent meditation, I do mantra meditation, but I also sometimes do silent meditation. I, I, I get this sort of 
feeling of doing further study and I, I just thought I'm not really I don't, and then I just googled I thought I'll just see what there is and there were there was a master's in spirituality and ecology and it was at Schumacher College and um, uh, which is a college in Dem Devon set up with Satish Kumar where they do alternative teaching um, and also some of it had distant components at the University of Wales so um, that's what I ended up doing and this is the course that's really enriched my understanding of what's happened and where we've got to um, and influenced many of the things I talk about and the way that I talk about my em environmental uh, law and, and the way that I approach the campaigning and, and, and the connection between ecology and spirituality and really helped me put that in a wider context and understand how I might articulate that. So, so yeah, that's why wow. I'm doing it a second time around. And, Hopefully it will be equally as useful once I eventually oh, finish it. It already is, but I'm when sure. I finished it, I, I'm intending to work out how to how to kind of uh, use it a little bit more um, in a more of an engaged way. But also, it's so interesting you say. Uh Satish Kumar because I'm actually I've got a talk with him on Tuesday and oh it, amazing yeah and I think it it will really help this sort of very holistic it will probably give you a more holistic or, or you probably have found that so far that's incredible I didn't realize that was where you were doing your masters that's really phenomenal wow and I, I mean what if you had to share a gem one gem with us that you could share that you've learned on your in your masters uh this current one what what would you say it would be that's a tricky one. It's you just mentioned Satish Kumar. He's just uh, he's astonishing. Actually, yeah, his I, story I, is phenomenal. At what age he's at now, and he's still his eyes just twinkle like a little boy's, and he's had so much energy, and it's it's absolutely just being in a room with him, you really feel that that commitment and that energy and that love. You know, um, I remember we were, um, maybe this is what I will, I will have as a takeaway from my masters, among many other things, but. Um, he was. We he had one of his um, sessions in the common room, and we were all sitting there. And I remember him. And he was saying, you know, the question you should be asking is, how can I love you? And then he put on and said, how can I love you? How can I love you? And it was really, you could really feel that sort of deep. He wasn't. It was totally genuine, and he was just pouring out um, so much love. And at the essence of so many religions, and you know, the spiritual practice um, of the Bhakti is about love. And that it's so much what we're missing, I think, in, in our lives and in the world. And environmentalism is a particular, it's a love of nature, but it's also connection and love with a, of other people and of animals and understanding ourselves as part of that whole. And so, you know, how can I love you is a really beautiful way of kind of encapsulating what this is really ultimately about. Absolutely. And I mean, that this, this extends, this is sort of part of your real essence, because obviously I know that it's sort of very much the work you're trying to sort of lead on with the eco sangha that we're we're both part of, but that you do a very good job. And actually, you're very humble. Um, you're so knowledgeable. Actually, you're you're you really are. And I think you are. You come across with such calmness, no air of arrogance, or no uh, sort of sense of I know so much, which you do, but you present it so nicely and in such an encouraging way. Uh, which only does you absolute credit um and i guess sort of just sort of con concluding points really i mean if if you if you had anything else that you'd like to sort of share on this podcast is there anything more that you feel like we we could cover that that perhaps we haven't already oh i i feel that it's been really uh, comprehensive i've really enjoyed it um i i feel I, I do feel very humbled to be part of that sangha because you're all doing such amazing things and I think it's it's wonderful that 
we have uh, people who are able to come together in community and it reminds me of a quote of um, things happen I, I'm going to totally mess up the quote because I can't remember it word for word but it's effectively about things that have only ever happened when groups of people come together yeah and that yeah. maybe might be what I would want to leave listeners away with is where 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 can we come together and be in community and pool our ideas and be greater than the sum of our parts um, in whatever way it doesn't have to be obviously environmentalism if that's not your thing but everyone has this sort of deep essence of something that they feel that they are here to contribute and so often the best way to contribute is in community with others and perhaps that's how I would leave them as a leave a reflection that's a beautiful reflection and you know we are all brothers and sisters as I said before on our on on the podcast and actually if we can all collectively do our bit it makes such a huge difference so um Keith it's very timely you did a quote because I normally end on a quote and I've got one by uh it's a lovely quote by Dr Jane uh, Goodall, which uh, who says that what you do makes a difference, and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. And I think that actually very well encapsulates the very point you were just now making, Geetha, about whatever it might be, whatever your bag is, please do something for more than just yourself and and for the greater good. And that's sort of what the idea of the podcast is. It's sort of just leaving people with different ideas and snippets to hopefully make this world a better place. So thank you so very much for coming on. Uh, and sharing your wealth of experience and giving us an insight to the wonderful work you've done, the wonderful work you continue to do and for being such a good force for nature. Uh, So thank you so, so much. And thank you for listening, everyone. I hope you found this as encouraging and restorative as, as I have. Um, well, thank you so much, Roshni. You've just done such a wonderful job. And I love that you had already intuitively sensed where this was going to end because <laughs> of how you chose that quote. Um, and I find it you know, super inspiring to be part of this song and energizing and to be around people like you. And I think this is just such a beautiful service you're doing. So thank you for doing oh, it. Oh, you're very kind. My pleasure. But thank you, everyone, for listening. And until next time, I hope you stay real safe. Take care. God bless.